Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome back to the Dear Prudence podcast once again. And as always, I am Mallory Ortberg, also known as Dear Prudence. With us in the studio this week is our guest, Kai Milner, who I'm very excited to get to introduce to you. But first, I have a request. It's 2017 now, and I've decided that from now on, the only questions I want from all of you are good questions about your wildly good fortune. I want questions like, my kindly grandmother, who passed away at 410, has left me too many diamonds. How many tiaras can I give away to my friends? Um, that's what I want from all of you. And I don't want you to have to lie. So I, I need you all to just have fantastic good fortune in the coming year. Um, so that is my goal and my expectation and my hope for all of you. Uh, I hope all your problems get no more serious than my siblings are all so nice to me. I don't know which of them to call and thank first. Um, anything worse, I just won't allow it to happen to any of you. If you are listening to this podcast right now, know that you are under my protection and guidance uh, and that the universe will spare you uh, any pain and discomfort in the coming year. That's the goal anyways. So on that note, I want to welcome Kai Milner. She's an editorial writer and columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle. She's also the author of the memoir, The Golden Road, Notes on My Gentrification. Kai, welcome. Hi, very excited to be here. I'm so excited that you came. I feel like uh, I've known you uh, I mean, through your writing for the last couple of years right? and then got to do a couple of events with you in and around San Francisco, which has been very fun. Right. I and think I, you make me laugh more than I make you laugh, sadly. But Well, you made me think this is a person who should be dispensing advice to people Ooh. because you're never wrong. I don't know if anyone's ever told you this, but I've been tracking you for a while now and you've never been wrong yet. That is unfortunate because I am often depressed or rather pessimistic about what's going on. But you're not wrong. That's true. Yeah. No, I wish, as, as you just heard, you know, my, my guidance and protection now applies to you in 2017. You were wrapped inside a golden bubble of my good intentions. I can't wait. Um, so only, you're, I, I promise you, as soon as you step out of the studio today, you will find a jewel, and the jewel will be the, like the opposite of cursed. Do you I, know what I mean? Like it will, it will invite you to start upon a great mystery. I promise to send you the first question about diamonds and tiaras. Thank you so much. I actually did last minute today in the live chat get a question about diamonds. Fantastic. It was not a happy question about diamonds, but it was a question about diamonds that I feel like is, is resolvable. Wow, what was the question? It was uh, it, it was about this family. It actually sounded very magical. It was like there were seven daughters in the family, and the grandmother who recently died had seven diamonds, like one for each, um, which like right away is a fantastic start to a story. Absolutely. Uh, and each daughter got a diamond. Uh, I think the grandfather had had them all made into pendants so they could all share them. And one of the daughters, uh, after a couple of years, gave the pendant to her wife. Uh, and her wife uh, wants to have it reset because she wants to she doesn't like the way that it like sits on her neck or something. Um, and so there was just like, oh, what do we do? And I was just like, this is actually like not so bad. Like she's not trying to sell it. 
she's not trying to, like, give it away to strangers. She wants to wear the diamond. It's still in the family. She's just looking to find a way that suits her. You know, no, no seven people are all going to want the same pendant, probably. Which right. Which is a wonderful sentence to get to say. Yeah. Um, she just needs, like, a jeweler recommendation. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, this this will, this will means she wants to keep it in her daily life, right? Like, she wants to honor your grandmother. She wants to have the diamond around. Um she, the, the the diamond is just you know stepping into its new destiny. It's it, nothing bad's happening to the diamond or your grandmother's memory. No, now it's becoming like part of a further generation of love. That's a great question. Yeah, it's wonderful. All diamonds should be transformed in this magical family of seven daughters. <laughs> Definitely I'm super into this. Um, so our first question has nothing to do with diamonds. But I also think that this is solvable, uh, and it's a little bit of a long one. Some of our questions today are a little bit on the longer side, so I'm, I'm hoping we're kind of going to get to delve into them. But uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and read our first letter, if that's okay with you. Let's go. All right. Dear Prudence, my husband has worked for the same company for over 20 years. We've been married for 34. The owner of the company, along with her husband, has always seemed abnormally close to my husband. Years ago, we had a big argument about how much he spoke with her, about two to three times a day, at least 20 minutes per call, after I looked at a cell phone bill. A few years after that, my mother-in-law died, and he had to take time off work to attend the funeral. During our trip, his boss called quite frequently, and one morning he was in the shower when she called, and I listened to the voicemail that she left in which she said, Right now, you're probably driving past miles and miles of cornfields and could use some company. Please give me a call. I look forward to hearing from you, friend. I confronted him about the call, but instead of calling her back to tell her how disrespectful her message was to me, after all, she knew he already had driving company, he threw his cell phone in the toilet, completely destroying it. He has maintained that he was upset I confronted him and blamed him for a call that he didn't ask her to make. I regret not calling her and confronting her then. Instead, I seethed about it for years. Last year, I finally decided to write her an email expressing how much that call had bothered me in its disrespect both towards me and the fact that my husband was dealing with the loss of his mom. Her reply read, I can assure you that my and your husband's relationship is strictly professional, although I do consider him a friend. There was no apology. I am still not over this, and I don't know how I can be when I've never received an apology or explanation of why she felt close enough to her employee to talk about keeping him company during a long drive. I feel he must have done something to encourage her comfort in talking that way, but I don't think I'll ever get an explanation from him. Meanwhile, I've seen a lot of changes in his work. No longer does he have breakfast meetings or after-work meetings, which for a while were very frequent. In reading all of this, it seems very obvious that they were having an affair, but he has been adamant that it never happened, and I never had any actual proof that it did. Even when he had those work meetings, he was always available if I called, and I did many times. Do you think they had some sort of emotional affair going on? Something that never led to actual sex, but still gave her enough confidence to leave the kind of message she did on his voicemail? Was I in the wrong to listen to it, even though she was invading our privacy by constantly calling and to email her last year? Am I completely naive? Wow. I almost did not include this letter because I thought it might be fake, which is not a feeling I often get about letters that are like this close to being included. But it's hard to imagine including this many details that undermine your thesis statement and still finish it thinking you might not be in the wrong here. Yes. Wait, do you do you think that the that there was an affair? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, she could have stopped writing at the detail where she was like, he threw the phone in the toilet. That, to me, it's pretty clear the conversation you need to have is not with this woman. It's with your husband. See, I I think 
reading between the lines here, or actually just reading the lines, if I were married to someone who treated me this way, I also would throw my phone in the toilet. She's intrusive. She's definitely, I mean, she's going through his his cell phone bills. Cell phone bills. She's looking through his messages. She's listening in on his voicemails. Um, it's It's definitely too much. Yeah. On the other hand... If she has, if she has some kind of inkling, if she has some kind of feeling, the person she needs to be discussing it with is her husband, not her husband's boss. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was like in a cornucopia of inappropriateness. That was like the crown jewel. If you were to put jewels in cornucopias, which you don't, um, like there's a lot of stuff here that I think demonstrated bad judgment on the letter writer's call. But I think number one was emailing your husband's boss. About like a year ago, leaving a voicemail while he was driving to his mother's funeral. I mean, I just got to tell you, letter writer, um, he's worked for them for 23 years. They're close. Like if you work for a small company and you've known your boss for more than two decades, it's probably not just like, ah, my boss who I see once a week. Like it is actually okay that they are friends. And the fact that she said, I thought you could use some company and I'm thinking about you and you're my friend. Like, that's not disrespectful to the fact that your husband just lost his mother. And that's actually really wild that you thought it was disrespectful. That was actually, like, appropriate, kind, loving, helpful. Um, Like, you're just way off base here. Yeah, there were so many moments when she was making assumptions about what this woman had to know or what this woman should have known. And the whole time you were reading the letter, she kept being like, well, why didn't she apologize at this moment? And it's like, actually, I, I didn't see any reason why she should have known that or why you should have assumed that she would have apologized to you. For what? For calling your husband when he's on his way to the mother's funeral and expressing concern about his well-being? Yeah. Maybe she got a little poetic with it? Yeah. I mean, there's some cornfields. You're my friend. It, like, it's hardly a love letter. Do you know what I mean? Like, Absolutely. Uh, and And if there ever had been a time when you guys when there was perhaps like too much time he was spending with her like unfortunately you have blown it all so far out of proportion that i don't know how you can go back and have that conversation now um like you know depending on where you work and what industry you're in and the size of your company it's not outrageous to talk to your boss on the phone a couple times a day for up to 20 minutes half an hour um it's That's, impressive that he was still taking his wife's calls during all of those meetings. Right. He was actually. available during all those meetings. Like, I just have to say, like, obviously anything's possible. It may be that at some point there was something more than friendly going on between him and his boss. There's nothing in your letter to me that suggests that there was. There's everything in their, your letter that suggests to me that you've been accusing him of bad intentions, violating his privacy, harassing his boss over pretty normal work behavior. And... I, I, I think you really need to examine that. Like, I think the person who needs to be apologizing is you. Definitely. And it sounds like she's feeling insecure about her relationship with her husband for some yeah. other reason. So maybe that's the way to get into conversation with him. Yeah. Honey, I'm so sorry. I have been out of order in all of the ways that I've been approaching you and your boss about this. But I felt so threatened by X that we need to discuss it. 
Right, right. I don't want to be, I don't want to say like it's wrong to feel threatened, right? Because sometimes you can acknowledge that you feel irrational jealousy and that's okay. But you didn't say that. You instead like fabricated this affair in your head. You're like, reading all this, it seems obvious to me that they're having an affair. I got to tell you, reading all this, it is not obvious that they're having an affair. It's obvious that you're like, out of control insecurity and jealousy is damaging your marriage and preventing you from being a good partner to your husband. And I think that's really sad. Um, and potentially affecting his ability to work. Yeah. I mean, that's that's you're threatening your family's income by yeah, doing you that too. Jeopardized his livelihood. Like I, I kinda can't think of an instance where it would be appropriate to contact uh your partner's employer. Um, frankly, even if they had been having an affair, if they had been and you'd caught him out, the appropriate thing to do would have been to leave him and file for divorce, not to call his employer. Um, like there's just not a situation where you ever need to call a partner's boss. That's their boss. That's not yours. So like this whole thing of like she was violating his privacy by calling him. No, like you violated his privacy repeatedly, like by going through his cell phone bill, by listening to his voicemails when he's in the shower, by calling him when he's at a work meeting repeatedly. Like, uh, buddy, you got to like take the plank out of your own eye, I'm afraid. Um, Definitely. And I think this is going to be hard to hear, right? You've been married for 34 years. He's been working for this woman for 23. You've clearly developed this resentment over years and years and years. It's not easy to stop and think, oh, no, like have a memento style flashback where all of a sudden you realize that you've been the one doing villainous stuff. Um, But I I think that that's what's going on here. I think you should probably go to a counselor, either a couple's counselor or by yourself. Like you've clearly got some some just deep issues of feeling loved and feeling secure that you need to address. And I don't say that like that makes you a terrible person and you're you're weak. I just think like. You're clearly doing this out of a place of desperate need, and you should pay attention to that. You're just doing the wrong thing about that need. Definitely. Like, hunting through his cell phone bill is never going to make you feel more secure. Definitely. Talking to a therapist might. Yeah. And I would I would err on the couple's counselor side, too, because him. I, I keep going back to him throwing his phone in the toilet. Mm-hmm. That, that says to me that you guys aren't arguing or you're not discussing your problems in a way that's healthy and constructive. Right. Right. Yeah. He threw his phone in the toilet because he felt like there's nothing I can say right now. And right. he needs to be able to use his words. Like there may be some passivity on his part um, that leads the letter writer to feel like, well, I have to like go through his stuff because he won't talk to me. You don't have to. But uh, I imagine that that's a dynamic that's not helpful. Right. Uh, and you need to never email his boss ever again. Unless it's to apologize for your previous behavior. You know, even that, I feel like since it was more than a year ago and since it sounds like it's always going to be hard for her to talk to this person without kind of going back into old behavior that's really destructive, I think just don't email her, don't call her. If you see her, be polite and don't don't go into any details. Um Maybe maybe an apology could happen somewhere down the road after some therapy. But like right now, you you need to not talk to her. Um, you need to leave that woman alone. Definitely. Um, but yeah, I think just to really stress, like calling someone when they're driving to their mother's funeral and saying, you know, I'm really sorry. I care about you. If you want to talk, call me. That's not inappropriate. No. And in fact, we all need more friends who are willing to call us in those times of need. Yeah, she actually kind of sounds like a great boss. Ugh. Okay, anything else you feel like we can we can share with this person or you think that's the most we got? I think that's it. Have you ever emailed the boss of someone you were dating or married to? Never. Never. Never came up? Never. No. Yeah, no, I haven't either. That's a new one to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, well, this next one is 
kind of a step up in intensity. Uh, do you want to read this letter? Sure. Dear Prudence, I'm a 29-year-old man who was raped by a former college girlfriend a few years after graduating. It happened at a get-together with all of our friends while they were sleeping, and she was extremely drunk. The next day, when some of the friends learned what happened, I was somewhat numb, and I don't know if I explained fully the seriousness of it. They urged her to write me an apology email. She focused the apology on her drinking, and I deleted it angrily. To be honest, I don't even know if she remembers or if she knows what she did to me. Last year, I finally started being able to talk about what happened. I opened up to my therapist, a few choice friends, my girlfriend, and a fellow journalist who writes about these issues. In retrospect, our relationship was extremely emotionally abusive, even when it was consensual. When we dated, I started cutting myself, and I used alcohol and drugs to cope with her. I'm a lot happier now and well-adjusted emotionally. My rapist also seems to be in a better place, no longer drinking irresponsibly, in a healthy relationship, etc., Though I haven't been able to forgive her, I actually wish her no ill. At the same time, I realize I don't want this rapist in my life. Because she is part of my close-knit group of college friends and we frequently all do things together, I feel like I can't cut her out without also substantially cutting down on the time I get to spend with people I love. I have explained this to a few of my friends in that group, but none of them fully understand the situation. I am loath to talk about it. Our group emails each other extensively and does video chats and other online correspondence since we spread out post-college. In these instances, I've simply started ignoring her, especially anything she says to me. But it hurts me when I see my friends congratulating her on successes and when I see her sharing positive things about her life and her relationships when for so many years she ruined mine. In person, I feel extremely uncomfortable around her. She used to publicly grope me before and after the rape. Yet I know I'll see her several times in the coming year. Is there any way for me to deal with this situation without alienating the friends in this group that I love? Man, this, I, I just feel so bad for this letter writer. I feel awful for this guy. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's just so painful and difficult. Um it's painful, it's difficult, and there's no way out of it that isn't going to be also painful and difficult. Yeah, I I think, I, I know I say this a lot, but I think especially for a situation like this, if you are not already in therapy, you know, I would definitely encourage you to pursue it, just especially since you are working towards a goal of figuring out how to talk to your friends about this, how to state what you need, how to set boundaries, like to go to a professional who can help you figure out what's the most effective way to do this, how to figure out what are your goals, what are things you want to avoid, what are things you want to make sure you get to do, um, to have somebody who is neutral, who is, you know, more objective, who's not connected to this friend group in any way, and who's just there to be on your side and to help you set limits, I think will be so helpful. Because what you're about to do involves like, the majority of your social circle, the majority of your emotional support network. And so I think you will need additional support as you do this. So I really encourage you to do that before you um, do anything else. Absolutely. And it, it sounds like you had already talked to a therapist um, to even just to comprehend what had happened to you, which is huge. Um, and at, when the time comes when you're ready to start talking to people, openly about this, and you said that you were loath to talk about it, but one of the things a therapist can help you do is to help you get over that feeling of shame and that feeling that you can't share this with other people. 
because you can and and you will have to and there's a way to do it so that it doesn't feel like it's destroying you yeah so when you're ready to start talking about it definitely make sure that you book extra sessions with your therapist to to kind of build up to what you need to do and i want to put in a plug too for um you know part of what's going to be hard is you know even the most edited and condensed version that you would share with your friends like you're going to get a wide range of responses and you know, my goal for you is for you to be able to get what you need, right? Like for you to be able to take care of yourself and to not do things that you don't want to do. Um, so, you know, if somebody responds in a way that's like, I'm horrified and I want a ton of details and you have to tell me now and like now you kind of have to take care of my emotional response. Like I want you to be prepared for that just so that, you know, you don't have to. Like it's great if and when you decide to share with this with friends, but also like you get to decide how much you want to talk about it. So if you tell somebody and their response in any sort of emotional direction is we have to talk about this right now. I need a lot of details. You have to share it like you don't have to. Definitely not. Just want to make that really clear. Like you don't owe anyone like just specific details if you don't feel ready um you're allowed to just say i don't want to be around this person because she raped me i'm not ready to talk about it further um like please respect that decision like you can do that um and i hope very much that your friends will hear that and listen to that if if that's what you need right and also speaking of the range of responses um some of the people who you talk to may not have a response that makes you feel better about yourself or better about her or I mean some people you're going to tell this to and they're they may not believe you or they may not want to um they may not want to change their own social circle they may think about it like well what about me I'm friends with her and I want to stay friends with her and that's something to to be prepared for as well right right and that's just a horrible reality of what happens a lot um after someone says, hey, I was raped. Is And I hope that this does not happen a lot in your friend groups, but I think it is wise to be prepared for. If somebody says, maybe you don't remember it correctly, I'm sure she didn't mean it that way, or anything that tries to like diminish or downplay the seriousness of what happened, like, um, you know, allow yourself to grieve that loss, allow yourself to be like sad and angry, and figure out like if that's a person that you can have in your life. Um, because you deserve... Uh, you know, people who do not try to minimize or downplay the fact that you were raped. And, and I think that that's something also to bear in mind. Um, if that is a response somebody has to think through, like, can I continue a friendship with this person? Even if we like have a wonderful friendship, even if I have a lot of fond college memories, if when I say my girlfriend raped me, their response is anything other than like, you know, pretty full-fledged support. Um, you know, you get to decide if you need that person in your life right now. Correct. Um, Gosh, but it, yeah, so it sounds like I'm just kind of looking through this again. Um, it sounds like your goal is not to press charges, which I really want to like respect and honor. Like that's your call. You don't have to do that. Um, it sounds like you want to uh, minimize any contact with her as much as possible, as well as you don't want your other friends to praise her to you or bring her up around you. And I think that's a really appropriate limit. So like if those are your goals, um, I think to figure out a version that you can say, it sounds like some people already know like some version of the events and it might be easier to go to them first and just to say, hey, I know that you know that when like this person and I were dating um, that one night they got too drunk and assaulted me. And I just need you to know what happened that night was not like a quarrel. 
Um, it wasn't just that I was worried about her drinking. She raped me. Uh, and more than that, both before and after she raped me, she would publicly grope me without my consent. Um, and I, that's a pretty important detail in there, too. Like, right. um, this is repeated behavior. I don't know if she was drunk every time that she did it. So it's very possible that this is something she's done, both drunk and sober. Um, and to just really make it clear, like, this is not an issue of, like, we need to, like, hash our issues out. Like, I, I need to not have her in my life. Correct. And I'm going to ask you not to mention her to me, not to invite her to events that I'm going to be at. And if I see her at an event, I'm 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 going to choose to leave. And I, I need you to know that. And, and those might be the easiest people to talk to first, as opposed to people who maybe have no idea what happened. Right. And if they're really good friends, some of those people may actually be able to advocate for you and for your position around this person to the rest of the group. Yep. Yep. Uh, and I just think that, like, it sounds like that whole relationship was so painful for you. I'm just like, I just want to just like acknowledge like how wonderful it is that you've been able to take care of yourself and and get better in terms of like how you're caring for yourself. Um, and to to ask your friends to be there for you, to say like, I need this from you. And maybe this is, uh, you know, look out for me if there's going to be like a social gathering. Um, and and if you think she's going to be there, like maybe spend some time with me. Maybe let's go for a walk. Um, but ask ask for support, like and give them the chance to provide it. And I hope that they do. I hope that they step up. Um, it, it's just so weird to me that like when it happened, your friends had kind of some understanding and said the correct thing for her to do now is to apologize over email. Um, I, I, I want them to do better than that for you. I do too. And you may also find, I mean, it's interesting. I was thinking about all the work that you've done to kind of improve yourself and to better yourself through therapy, through um, talking to other people about the things that you've happened. You may find that you will uh, make new friends who are different from your current circle and who are more well-suited to the life that you have now. Right. Right. Because that's, I mean, that's true of almost anybody in their late 20s, um, regardless of whether or not there's been like a, a trauma as intense as yours. Um, so I don't want to say like, don't worry, you'll get new friends. Who cares about these people? But but to just also be aware that like this is a time in life when you sometimes do find new friendships. And if their response as a group tends toward the disappointing end, like that it is OK to spend more time cultivating other friendships with people who can be supportive in the way that you need. Um because I, I really feel like, you know, you don't have to protect her. Um, you no. Don't have to, like, you do not need to be worried about her well-being. Um, you don't have to worry about making other people uncomfortable. No. Um, if somebody is alienated by the fact that you say, like, this woman raped me, I don't want to be around her. Um, like, that's not on you if that's they feel alienated. definitely not on you. Yeah. And that is not someone who you need in your life either. Yep. Yep. Man, I just, I feel for you. Uh, thank you so much for writing. I'm so glad that you're taking care of yourself. And I just wish you the best of luck in figuring out how to articulate your needs to your friends. And I hope that they're really able to be there for you because you deserve it. Oh, all right. Uh, let's do this. Let's move on to, to issues about parents. We've got a couple great parent-themed letters today. Uh, I'll go ahead and read this one since you took the last one. Dear Prudence. How does one broach the subject of retirement with one's aging parents? My mother has a history of being financially irresponsible, and I've seen her create a lot of difficulties for herself. 
Luck has usually bailed her out, like getting a large gift from a relative or an inheritance. But her compulsive spending and other bad habits worry me, as well as her inability to hold down a job for a long period of time. While we don't generally discuss finances, I've heard her make enough comments to know that she's run herself into debt more than once. With the recent death of her parents, she received a very large lump sum, which is a comfort to me. It was likely plenty for her to be able to plan her aging years. But now, her purchases have just gotten larger and more impulsive. I think she's going to run through that reserve very soon. We don't have a really open relationship where we can discuss such things without unfounded accusations about my motives. Anything that could be seen as criticism usually creates a blow-up. But she has only two children, and my brother is probably going to be useless, and they will probably both look to me to have her move in with me someday. She believes that she should hold primacy in my life over my spouse or children, and that a good child would do anything to care for their parents. But I'm not willing to do that. With a lot of childhood trauma and the ongoing tensions ever since, I just can't do it. But I'm also not well off and off to write monthly checks to a decent facility on the other side of the country. It'd be one thing if she really had no resources and was truly incapable of caring for herself. But she's had a lot of chances to get herself set, and she doesn't do it. She thinks she's a financial guru, but in reality, she's impulsive and has no idea what she's doing. What on earth do I do? She's in her early 60s, so we still have some time, but I don't want to wait for a health crisis to talk about this. The crisis is now. (laughs) Start talking to her right now. Yeah, I think that is a good instinct to, like, not wait until, like, she is ailing and she needs somewhere to stay tonight. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and not to go all Susie Orman on on uh, on you right here. Please because, do. Well, Put on a blazer and go full Susie. Well, Susie doesn't always have the best financial advice. But where Susie, I think, is totally right is that the most important financial thing you can do for your parents, for your children, for anyone who depends on you, is to make sure that you are taking care of your own financial health. And sometimes that means setting boundaries with those people so that they don't see you as an ATM or someone who's going to bail them out or be a safety net for them. So you absolutely have to say to your mother, listen, this is how it is. This is what I have. I will not be able to take care of you when you get when you get older, when you get sick. When you, I will not have the resources to do that. We need to make sure that you can take care of yourself because I can't do it. Yeah. No, I mean, I think your impulse is right on. Uh, I think it's absolutely appropriate for you to know that, like, you are not going to be able to be your mother's full-time caregiver at any point. Um, And to say that now, like, it sounds like it's not going to be an easy conversation. So I think you should go into it with low initial expectations. But just to say, like, Mom, I'm worried about your retirement. Um, Can we talk a little bit about your plans for the future? Um, And it may take several conversations, especially if she does go into unfounded accusations about your motives, like you said, which and I can totally understand a a parent who who might do this. You have to stay calm. You have to wait for that storm to pass. And when they've stopped raging, you have to go back to the topic at hand and be like, "Okay, now that we're done with that, let's talk about your retirement. Yes. You really get to parent your mom in this conversation. Like, I I, I believe it will be tempting if she goes into sort of a rant about your motives to be like, well, let me bring up all the things from the childhood. My childhood I'm still mad at you about. And like, now's not the time for that conversation. Now's the time for her to like, let her have whatever emotional response she's going to have. And then, yeah, just get back to the topic at hand and really stick to your guns. Like, you don't have to justify or explain it. You can just say like, mom, you need to know now. You will not be moving in with me. I will not be able to provide you with full-time care. And so I want to be helpful to you now as we prepare something that you can do to get ready for retirement. Like, you are 
happy to be a sounding board. You're happy to listen to her talk about her plans. You're happy to maybe help her set a budget. Like, think about what you are willing to do. Definitely. And then think through what you're not. And it sounds like you're not willing to fully subsidize her care. Um, You're not willing to, like, give her money now to bail her out of bad shopping habits, especially if it sounds like she's not trying to turn that around. And and you're not interested in, like, being her nurse someday. Um, And so if you go into it knowing those limits and just saying, like, no matter what, I'm just going to let her know the things I can't do. If nothing else, you have taken away the element of surprise. Right. Like, if that's all you get to do in that conversation, that's great. She will not be able to labor under the illusion that whenever she gets to a point where she can't uh, care for herself, that you will be, you know, uh, ready to take on her full-time care as your full-time job. That's right. That's it, Mom. No more fairy godmothers coming. Yeah. I mean, she's got plenty of time. She's 61. She's she um, sounds like has has often been uh, blessed by dying relatives. So maybe there's a few more great aunts and uncles in the woodwork who are willing to fling some more ducats her way. Um, But yeah, the best thing you can do for her is like clarify your intentions and maybe let your brother know the same thing, because it sounds like you're worried they might try to tag team you. Um, And so also just let him know, like, hey, Jimothy, uh, just so you know. Uh, if and when the day comes that mom needs full-time care, she's not going to move in with me. Heads you, up. You should definitely let your brother know because he might be depending on you to, to to come in and bail them out. It's It sounds like there's a fair amount of irresponsibility and um, with your other family members. So you may have to be the one to say, hey, look, I talked to mom and I told her that she needs to get a retirement plan together because if she loses all of her money, I can't take care of her. Yep. And you need to know that, too. Yep. And just to prepare yourself, like, let's say you have the conversation. All you manage to do is communicate your intention and nothing else changes. And she continues to go through cycles of being a little bit flush, buying a lot of stuff she doesn't need. Um, You need to kind of think through, like, okay, you know, if eight years from now, 15 years from now, whatever, there is a crisis that is brought about because of her bad decisions. How can I prepare myself for that so that I don't get guilted in the last minute into changing my mind? Um, And you can kind of think through, like, if such and such an event happens, I will be willing to point her in the direction of a financial planner. Um, I would be willing to set her up with a tax attorney. I would be willing to help her sell her house or sell some of her possessions um, so that you kind of can think through what you are already prepared to do and what you're not so that there's not like a sudden shocker um, where you feel like, oh, no, I thought I was prepared for this, but I wasn't ready for it to be now. Right. So much of this is going to be about boundaries that you set with yourself. Every bit as much of um, as the boundaries that you set with her. Right. So you have to be able to tell your mother, look, if this happens, I will not do X. And then when that time comes, you have to be like, as I said to you, I will not be able to do X for you. Right. You what be... I can do for you is this other thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get to be your own, like, court stenographer. Like, if the court will turn its attentions to the remarks made on March the 5th, 2017, uh, the court will be, you know, like, just, yeah, you get to draw her attention back to previous conversations. And that's hard, right? Because, like, you do feel bad for someone, even if they have landed themselves into the situation they're in. Even if it's your mother, even if your mother's difficult, like, that's sad. It's sad that she's not putting herself in a position to retire calmly. Um, but to also remember, like, just because she is in a constant state of crisis um, that she herself has created, like, you can feel sympathy for her, you can feel love for her, you can try to be useful, but that doesn't mean you have to fix it. Like, her emergency is not your emergency. 
Right. And it sounds like maybe you had to do a bit of parenting for her when you were growing up already. So you might have some feelings around these issues, which are totally understandable. Yeah. No, and the line that really jumps up out at me is she believes that a good child would do anything to care for their parents. Um, You just get to go ahead and dismiss that. That's actually not the definition of a good child. A a good child is not someone who will sacrifice any and all things to take care of their parents indefinitely. Um, You can if you want to. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't make, make you, you a good parent. Yeah, it doesn't make you a good child either. And so just to, like if she goes at that angle, just be like, Mom, I love you. That's not my job. Um, to, and to just bear that in mind, like if she tries to hit you with the ungrateful daughter stuff, um, just to remind yourself like that's not reality. That's not true. Because um, sometimes that can feel really true if your mom is yelling it at you because your mom has a lot of power over you, even if even if you try to create distance. Uh, let's switch to brothers, shall we? Definitely. Oh, man. This letter. This Ooh. one. This is just, oh, man. Families. Families are rough. They really are. Uh, Shall I uh, read it? Please do. Yes. Okay. My, hu- my husband's brother, he's 39, has been jobless for almost a decade. He lied to my mother-in-law about starting a business so that she would invest $25,000 and then claimed the business failed. He said his credit card was stolen and my in-laws paid his entire bill. He lives in California with various friends who are willing to take him in. Once a year, he calls my mother-in-law and asks her to fly him out for a visit, during which he asks them to pay off his credit card. They always buy him a ticket, since it's the only chance they get to see him. He refuses to respond to their calls and emails, and only gets in touch when he needs money. My in-laws are terrified that he'll become homeless, so they pay his credit card debt using money for them from their retirement savings. They've also started paying his rent so he can focus on getting a job. It's been a year, and he's still unemployed. As best as I can tell, he spends most of his time surfing and hanging out with his friends. Whenever I talk to him, he boasts about how he is living the life and that he is guiltily happy. Last year, my husband and I finally convinced his parents to stop paying my brother-in-law's bills. They did, and he moved back in with them, because he's maxed out all of his credit cards. Sadly, the problem isn't that he's still living at home, or still jobless, or still scamming his parents financially. The bigger issue is that he's verbally and emotionally abuses them. He constantly calls my mother-in-law names and tells her that she's crazy. He does things like leaving the front door unlocked 24-7 because it's more convenient for him, even when asked not to. My in-laws are both in their 70s and afraid they wouldn't be able to protect themselves if they were robbed. When my brother-in-law doesn't get his way, he gets loud and aggressive and insists that it is my mother-in-law's fault. She calls my husband every week, crying, saying that everything is her fault that they don't have a good relationship. We keep trying to convince my in-laws to stand up for themselves, to stop supporting him financially, and to tell him to move out and look for a job but they are convinced that their son will go homeless if they kick him out, even though we keep telling him that he's not going to be. They're terrified of him going into debt, so they keep paying things off for him. They think that everything will figure itself out, and eventually my brother-in-law will move out, get a job, and live a normal life. But there's no time. They're in their 70s. How much longer do we need to wait for something to change? My brother-in-law and my husband argue every time they see each other, which is once a year. So we told my mother-in-law that we are not going to visit this year unless we have their support to do an intervention with my brother-in-law. My mother-in-law won't agree to this plan because she thinks that my brother-in-law will be angry or go homeless if not supported by them. She is in complete denial and says that we should just forget it. 
My father-in-law wants to give their two-story house to my brother-in-law so that he has a place to live, and my in-laws will move to to a retirement home. My mother-in-law wants us to pretend like nothing happened and to scrap the intervention idea. What should we do? Oh, man. There's so many things here. This one feels a lot harder than the last letter because although there are similar themes, right, of like other people's emergencies aren't your emergency, this also blends into elder abuse um, and their safety Um, there was a line in the letter that we edited out, but it just, the letter writer said, my mother-in-law says she hides in her room all day because she's afraid of making him angry. And that, that to me really crosses a line from, is the issue that he's like milking them for all their worth to, do they feel safe in their own home? Yeah, there, there are a lot of things to unpack here. Um, how the in-laws are dealing with it. Uh, I sense some kind of sibling resentment. Um, around this as well, um, between her husband and and the brother about the way that he's acting and how he's treating their parents. Um, And of course, the the letter writer just must be feeling incredibly helpless watching this whole situation. Right. Especially when it's your in-laws and um, you might feel a little bit less equipped to talk directly to your mother-in-law than you might to your own mother. Wow. Do you feel like the most important thing for this letter writer is for her and her husband to figure out their own boundaries? Or do you think the most important thing is for them to figure out a point of intervention to investigate whether or not there's like more serious elder abuse going on? Because it's not, I mean, it's, it's not exactly a gray area, but it's also not, you know, he's not, it doesn't sound like physically abusing them. doesn't sound like he's trying to keep them from like food or medication, but it does feel like there might be more going on here than we get to know. And I'm not sure which 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 one they should kind of hold as the greater priority. That's a good point. Um, and I didn't get the sense that the in-laws were unhealthy or that they were afraid for their lives. It just seemed like they were upset about the way that their son was acting and upset that they hadn't done a better job with him, mm-hmm. which is kind of like a, a regret that I, I think a lot of parents have when their adult children act out. Um, but that said, I mean, it was interesting to me that they only visit once a year. So what that says to me is maybe they're not 100% sure of what's going on in the house. I think they mentioned that the mother-in-law does call pretty frequently. Like there, there is a boundary that probably needs to be set in terms of it sounds like she's calling a couple of times a week to do a big emotional dump on them. But then when they want to respond and say like, hey, this has this concern, we want to talk about it. Then she says, no, 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 no. I just want to be able to vent to you um, without uh, getting any response, which I think is, that's clearly not tenable. Like that's not going to be able to go on. No. And there's no intervention with the brother-in-law that is going to work unless the in-laws are ready to stop enabling him. Right. Right. I mean, he's not doing anything they're not letting him do. Right. And that's what's hard um, is they've made it really clear that they will like full on giving tree this situation. They will give him their branches and their fruit and their leaves and like turn into stumps so that he can have like a shitty boat or whatever. Sorry, that was a terrible simile or metaphor. It was upsetting. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, I, I do wonder. There was a line in here that it said, my father-in-law wants to give their two-story house to my brother-in-law. And I did wonder how much of the intervention was um, maybe the, the letter writer and her husband saying, like, we don't want the parents giving everything to this guy. Right. I mean, the conflict avoidant part of me is like, hey, maybe that would solve everyone's problems. They can go be in a retirement home and he can leave them alone so that they don't have to hide in their rooms all day and he doesn't yell at them. Um, and and this way he just is is removed from their living situation. But I just don't believe that this is the type of person who, when he gets the house, is going to say, great, I've got enough. I can stop um, draining them of resources and money. I feel like probably if you give it, you know, this is to, to do another children's book situation. This is like if you give a mouse a cookie here. Like if you give him the house, He's going to come back in six months and say he needs help paying the mortgage. He's going to need help paying the mortgage, and he's going to need help with more credit card bills because it sounds like he's charging everything. Yeah. So I feel like that's actually not a great long-term solution. Um, And it's really worrying that they're dipping into their retirement to bail him out of, like, what sounds like pretty frivolous credit card debt. Um, if he's spending all his time surfing and hanging out with friends, like it doesn't sound like this is credit card debt because of like a serious medical issue or like something that might provide like extenuating circumstances. Right. But unfortunately, it doesn't sound like he's willing to listen to um, his brother and and the wife over this. It sounds like the point of contact has to be through the parents. So you're going to have to say to the parents, listen, um, these phone calls, these twice weekly phone calls where you just complain about my brother, they have they have to stop. Yep. And they have to stop because I am because I can't keep listening to I can't keep listening to you being so hurt and so upset over actions that you are enabling yeah. by continuing to give him money, by continuing to bail him out, by allowing him to speak to you in these ways. I I, I can't deal with it anymore. Yep. Yep. And to say, you know, I, I love you. I love hearing from you. I love talking to you. I welcome a phone call at any time. Um, and I need to draw a really clear boundary because we've tried to have this conversation before and you've made it really clear that you're not willing to take any action when it comes to um, not enabling him. So, you know, if you call and you bring him up and it's about money that you are giving him and the ways that he's treating you when you let him live in your house, I'm going to end the conversation. Right. I'm not doing that to punish you. I'm not doing it because I'm angry with you. I'm doing it because there's nothing I can do. You've made it really clear that you're not willing to take any steps to change the situation. Um, so further conversation about it's just going to be fruitless. And that's hard. Uh, and and that's going to feel really painful. And I imagine because you are a safer target than the brother, because you guys are not like verbally abusive jerks, um, they will maybe take out some of their anger and frustration at him on you if you do that. Right. So you should be prepared for that. Um, and he will, too, if he learns that this is what you've been saying to them. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like you guys are already arguing with him and you already don't have a good relationship with him so you're prepared for some of that and like if you're gonna do a last hail mary like you know odds are that they will not receive this any better than they receive the other requests but you can just say like right now what you guys are doing um is teaching him that he does not need to rely upon himself to take care of himself all you're doing is teaching him that as long as he comes to you for money he'll get money so you are not um setting him up to be a competent self-sufficient adult you are setting him up to ask you for money for the rest of your life and i don't want that for you and i don't want that for him um and you know that they might hear that they might not they might in a couple years kind of like think back on that conversation and be like oh my god that's actually what's going on and, and it might 
serve as like an impetus to change. But I think you got to do that. Like, um, I, th- I think it's time to draw the line. And I think you're right. As like, as I'm looking through this, like, it's maybe worth speaking with a lawyer who um, specializes in elder abuse, just because this feels like the kind of situation that could easily turn into it. Like, it doesn't sound like they're in, like, failing health at present. It doesn't sound like they're afraid for their lives at present. But this also sounds like a situation where, like, it would not take a lot um, for it to turn into that. So even if you could just speak to a lawyer um, who can say, like, these behaviors do cross a line or these don't, but here's how you can kind of stay in touch and monitor the situation. Like, I think that that would be loving towards your parents, who I do have some sympathy for. Like, it's it's not quite the same as the last letter writer where it's just like, man, you need you made your bed and you're lying in it. Like, these people are clearly in pain. Um, they think they're helping their son. They want to help their son. Um, they're they're hurting their own futures. And, and it would be good for you to at least maintain some sort of contact so you can see, like, you know, if they start needing medication, that they're getting it, um, that they're feeding themselves, that they can, like, go to the living room sometimes. Like, right. Oh, this guy's the worst. Ugh, the absolute worst. No, and he's just not the kind of guy who, like, no no amount of money's ever going to be enough. No, he's going to keep being frittering everything away. Yeah, yeah. So in the absence of any, like, serious concerns about your parents' safety, and that's, like, a big caveat. Like, if there's anything that you haven't included in your letter or that you discover um, that makes you concerned for your parents' safety, like, go with intervention. It's better to have angry parents um, than it is to have parents that you find out later, like, were being, like, he wasn't, letting them that he was abusing them in some way like they're vulnerable they're older um but absent any evidence of that then you need to figure out all right let's say this goes on for the rest of their lives do i want to get that phone call three times a week for the rest of their lives i don't think you do you definitely don't yeah so you get to you get to say we stop having this conversation until you're ready to do something and the day you're ready to do something give me a call I will joyfully talk it out with you. I'll I will help you give him to. an eviction notice. I will help you like set up a scaling back financial plan where you give him less money over a period of several months if that's what you need. But like whatever it is, when you're ready to do something, I'm here to help you. And I promise you, this is a guy who knows how to take care of himself. He is not going to end up on the streets. He will find some lady who will take him in and nurture his dreams and buy him a guitar because um, he's going to make it, you know. But but not on your parents' dime forever. Yeah, no, this cat's got some real self-preservation skills and your parents are vastly underestimating them. It's always, isn't that always the way? It's always the kid who, like, would not allow harm to come to themselves at any cost that the parents think is always, like, the weakest and most in need of protection, it seems like, in, in dynamics like this. It really is. Where, and, and this guy's got nine lives. Yeah. And your parents are like, no, he's so frail. He's not frail. No, not at all. And and the sooner you yank that safety net out, out from under him, the sooner he's going to discover that. And I, I really feel for this this letter writer and her husband because to watch a situation like this and to not be able to do anything is so difficult. Yes. Yeah. No, and you just wish you could just call somebody who's just like going to boot him out the front door and say, find a job, take care of yourself, get it together. Um, right. This is one of those things that you cannot control, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to let your mother-in-law and your father-in-law know that you cannot listen to this anymore and that you will not be you will not have anything to do with this until they're ready to take action about yep. it. Yep. And and it's also great because um you know that uh when your parents pass, um if he ever comes to you for money, you already have your answer, which is no. Right. And he already he already knows that it sounds like. He yeah. already knows that you are not interested. Yeah. That doesn't mean he won't try. 10, 15 years from now when mom and dad are gone, 
doesn't mean he's not willing to come a knocking. But he will try. Yeah. Yeah, I think I can pretty effectively guarantee that. Yeah. And there, yeah, he might fight you about the will or, you know, there will be crazy oh. things going on. Oof. There's, I mean, he's going to go through the house and take all the stuff he wants and sell it first. You know what I mean? Like, there's not going to be any trouble with the will because he will have taken care of it beforehand. Um, so, yeah, prepare yourself for that, by the way. Sorry to, like, have you speculating about the financial ramifications of your parents' eventual death. Um, but just, like, be ready for him to be himself during that process. The good news is that you already know who he is. Yep. You just have to help your in-laws see that, too. Yep, yep. Um, and that you also, like, you can't make them see it. So you you also get to accept that, like, if they don't want to hear it, if they're not willing to do anything about it, that you get to set limits and say, I love you. And, you know, call me if you want to talk about the movies or, uh, you know, your bridge club or what book you're reading right now or how my kids are doing. But this topic of conversation is closed. Whew. Uh, I think... I think that's it. I think that we have just about examined every problem a person could have from every angle. Yeah. Solved all your problems. Are you feeling more or less pessimistic than you were at the beginning of this podcast? I am feeling less so. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm feeling like we're helping people get to the answers that they need. Yeah. Yeah. Does this make you feel more or less inclined to call anyone that you are related to after we get out of here? It definitely makes me feel inclined to call my brother and tell him I love him. Thank you for thank you for hanging in there. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, I'm glad that uh, we have fostered at least one slightly closer family relationship as the result of this podcast. Yes. I'm also going to go home and look for diamonds. Yes. Yes. You never know where they might be hiding. Um, and and now I've told the world to give them to you. So the world should provide Kai, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This was delightful. All right, we'll have to have you back someday. Before I leave you, I want to let all of you know, in case you had not already been informed, um, that you, you, all of you listening right now, um, have officially gained a new organ. Uh, I know that that sounds a little weird. Uh, it's true. Scientists have recently upgraded a certain membrane in the gut known as the mesentery uh, to the status of organ. Before it was just a membrane. Now it's an organ. So without even knowing it, the inside of you has blossomed into something even more complex and beautiful than you knew. So 2017 is already off to a great start. You have one more organ than you did last year. That's phenomenal. I mean, how many times have you thought about your insides and made more of them and, and, and elevated one to the status of a new organ? Like, that's, that's remarkable. You should be so proud of yourself. You've created something. You've lifted up part of your vitals uh, to a whole new state of being. Aristotle would be so proud. Um, so give yourself a pat on the back. You know, give yourself a treat today. Take a nap. You've earned it. You made a mesentery. You didn't have one before. Now you do. Um, and you should just be really proud. Mazel tov. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Audrey Dilling. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. If you like this show, please go to iTunes and write us a review. It helps new people find the show, and then more of you get advice. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401 371 dear. that's 3327, 
and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. That's 401-371-3327. 